are in the grotto pod and i am in the grotto pod and that's it it's just me where is bridget quinn author you might ask where is her delightful voice on the grotto pod this week you would find her at the mokulea writers retreat that's right I've been looking at texts and tweets and Facebook posts all week of palm trees swaying in the breeze. What have I been doing all week? Jury duty. The contrast is deafening, if a contrast can be deafening. Today, my guest, that's right, just me, is Paul Wexler. Now, Paul is a new Grotto member. He is a new member of the Grotto Pod team, and he has a very interesting body of work. So I immediately leaped on the, pos- the chance to get him in here to the Grotto Pod. What does he do? You ask. Well, uh, he is, how would I put this? Maybe the preeminent expert. Uh, yeah, I think expert is fair on crime in San Francisco, crime stories. And by that, I mean all kinds the salacious stuff from the Barbary Coast days all the way up to, uh, well, I think he, he is not an expert on, man, maybe he was called as an expert on Zodiac during the investigation. He is the 2000, 2017. Oscar Lewis Award winner from the San Francisco History Association, given to him for a great work in pursuit of learning about, well, San Francisco's crime history. He has a San Francisco Examiner column, which uh, you may recall I won at one time had. His is called Notorious Crooks. Mine was about real estate. You do the math. In his column, he, uh, each week, each actually bi-weekly, every other week, he will... Um, Recall a story of crime in San Francisco. Uh, it's very, very interesting stuff. Uh, and also, since 2009, he has been leading the Crooks Tours of San Francisco. That's right. Uh, there are all kinds of tours you can take in San Francisco. You can learn about food. You can learn about history. You can learn about Italian history, Chinese history. Uh, anything you want to learn about, you get Paul Drexler in there. You're going to learn about criminal history. And I don't know why, and I'm going to get to this a little bit in the, uh, well, I'm going to get to it pretty quick in the interview, but uh, the history of crime in San Francisco is something that tickles just about everyone's fancy. People want to know. It's the strangest thing. Uh, Paul has also appeared on many TV shows, naturally true crime shows. Uh, He is an in-demand speaker about crime, and he teaches crime history at San Francisco State University. That's the uh, college out there in the fog. Uh, he is going to come in here and uh, tell us his path. I almost said that led him to a life of crime, and I guess in a way it led him to a life of in crime? Hmm. Describing crime? Uh, from the moment that his Uncle Jack's car was stolen in the 1950s when he was a young boy uh, to his first published piece, which was The Bad Old Days, published in the San Francisco Chronicle, and his long collaboration with the former uh, San Francisco deputy police chief. Uh, And along the way, I'm hoping to get some info on some of the more heinous or colorful crimes in this city's history. And by that, I don't mean how much you have to pay in rent. There goes my notebook. Even with one person in here, there's still not enough room. So I'm going to go get Paul, and uh, we are going to start to sit back uh, and relax. And if you need to hear the sound of a player piano tinkling in the background to give you more of a Barbary Coast feel, go ahead and line one of those up. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the life and times of Paul Drexler. Paul, welcome to the Grotto Pod. I'm really happy that you're the first person to ever to bring, other than me, Western wear into the Grotto Pod. And definitely the first person to bring a Richard Brodigan mustache into the Grotto Pod. Um, but I, as I just said before I turned on the mics, during my intro, I mentioned a lot of your colorful career, but forgot to mention your new book. This is okay. your first book, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not done yet. Right, right. But, but so tell, us, yeah, tell, us, tell us where it's at and what it – is it a culmination or another step on the way? Well, you know, I, I write a column for the San Francisco Examiner yeah. called Notorious Crooks, and it's about – Interesting cases in the San Francisco Bay Area through the years, going back, well, well over 100 years. Um, so I've taken some of these cases and, like, serial killers or, or um, con artists or escape artists, and I've expanded them because, obviously, I have a, a pretty strict 
word limit writing for the paper. Yeah, what's your limit there? It's about a thousand words. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll do a two-parter. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm going over each one of those stories and then I'm expanding it. Okay. Yeah. You, you sent me, you sent me the, um, a little bit of your proposal on that. So, uh, you said it, has the proposal been accepted? Yeah, it's kind of strange. It was very, um, strange, I guess. Uh, you know, I've tried to get it published and I've gone through the whole agent thing Mm -hmm. and I pretty much felt that, you know, this is a regional book, um, and I'm probably going to self-publish it. Are you? That's what I, that was my plan. Oh, that's what you thought, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there's this um, publisher, I don't want to mention because I I, I haven't gotten the contract. You don't want to have a sideways type of experience. Right, right. Um, Who is involved strictly in the true crime Mm -hmm. area, and, and he's written many books of his own. And I sent him the proposal. And then I sent him the um, sample chapter, mm-hmm. and he said, "Yeah." So Sands agent, right? You just went right, right through, and it. it's uh, you know it's uh, it's through Amazon. I, I'm not sure about. I haven't seen what the printed mm-hmm. uh, thing will be, but the the offer was pretty good. Yeah, considering so how much of it do you have written? I have written hard to say, but I, I've written well over half of it. Okay, you know and. You mentioned just now that you thought it was regional, and I would almost argue otherwise, that for some reason when it comes to San Francisco, I won't say San Francisco and crime are inextricably linked, but something about crimes that happen in San Francisco seem to capture the fancy of people. Is that because they're weird crimes? Well, you know, I do think – and I, I think it's national too. Yeah, I, I've just been told it's not setting your hopes too high. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, San Francisco is a city that was founded in part by criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, Do explain to our non-historic minded uh, uh, listeners. Yes. Well, uh, the there's a great quote from uh, Kenneth Rexroth where he says that San Francisco was settled mostly by gamblers, prostitutes, rascals, immigrants, and fortune seekers. Who came across the isthmus and around the horn, which sort of set the template for the rest of us. <laughs> right, right, and and it, it also from the very beginning was probably the most cosmopolitan city. Uh, you you had a lot of you Chileans mean, coming up from oh, okay. South America because they were they had mining backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also had a lot of uh, New Yorkers. There there was a uh, a company that was raised for the Mexican-American War, which never got to fight mm-hmm. by the time. So they ended up out here, and they were the first sort of gang called the Hounds. So do you think it was kind of a combination of – because, I mean, a lot of what you just described, the rascals mm-hmm. and kind of the people who have run out of options, describes mm-hmm. almost any Western city of the 19th century. But do you think because there was water here, there was a port that brought other people in and kind of gave it a little more uh, texture – well, I mean, certainly it was easier to get here. Most of the in the early days, most of the people came by ship. Mm-hmm. Second, there was a lot of money here, mm. so with with the gold coming in, mm-hmm. and there weren't a lot of uh, law enforcement, so that was particularly you know. And then we also had uh, uh, a lot of Australians. They were known as the Sydney Ducks. How come? Well, you know, I. I I'll, in order to be, I would say that Australians had the had perhaps the uh, the greatest resume as criminals because they generally had to commit a crime. It was a prison colony mm-hmm. to be sent to Australia. The greatest resume, and and um, and then they would come here. There, obviously, they were all really good sailors, and you know, here is a town with this rich. Not a lot of cops. It's perfect for them. And they had a, actually a part of the town that was known as Sydney Town. Where was that? Uh, it was Knob Hill kind of area. Mm-hmm. And they, th- there were a number of fires started in the early years. Uh, and some of them by – the idea was the Sydney Ducks would wait until the fire was blowing away from Sydney Town, till the wind was. And they'd start a fire. Then as people were trying to put it out, they'd, they'd steal it's so funny how little we could – how unlikely it would be that modern-day San Franciscans could live in old San Francisco. When you were telling that story, I was thinking of the story of Irish Irish Hill, was it called? Yes. 
and how it wasn't the way I've read it described. You couldn't walk out your front door without getting hit over the head with a bottle, basically. Yeah, it was. You know, there was. Uh, it, it's incredible to to think of the amount of drinking that went right. on. Right, and it eventually burned down too. Right. Well, no, Irish Hill. It? Irish Hill actually was leveled. Right, uh, but before that, happened. something Be- happened. Um, no, I mean it, it just was just cumulative. Like, all right, that's it. No, uh, what happened was, I think, also there were a lot of factories. That's mm-hmm. you know, metal factories in Irish Hill. And I think a lot of the land was bought for for shipping uh, or shipbuilding and stuff like that. But, but for some reason, it was leveled. Because yeah, I, I walked the, by there. It's just the saddest little bump. Right, right. It, you know, it's very, very Irish. And it's true that look, you know, you, you got to go back. There's no Facebook. Right. There's no TV. Right. And, uh, you know, so so what do they do on the weekend? Well, often um, people who hung out in one bar would visit people who hung out in another bar and have a f- big fight. Just for kicks and or out of rivalry? Kicks. Just for kicks. <laughs> and then the, the, the winner would buy the losers a drink. It's, it's I like a, it. I like that. But so here's the problem. I could sit here and pump you for information on historic San Francisco because I'm one of those guys who will bore his friends by walking around mm-hmm. and going, hey, you know what happened on that corner in 1932? Mm-hmm. But I want to get your story too because I'm – you know, here at the Grotto, we have all kinds of writers. We have a lot of journalists. We have fiction writers. We have activist writers. We have everything. As far as I know, you're the only one who specializes in crime writing, which is an interesting genre because I think anyone who says they've never read a true crime book is lying. I mean, they're fascinating. I got, you know, I had all my little Anne Rule books back in, you know, back in my house. So I, you know, I tossed them when I came here. But um, so I want to get back to the spark of your interest in this field. And I know it was a long road that got you to the point where you could actually be writing books about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you told me the story. So I want you to tell the story again. Okay. Like, a, like a lot of San Francisco characters, you're from New Jersey. No, I'm from Brooklyn, actually. Oh, you're from Brooklyn. Yeah, okay. my uncle was living in New Jersey. Oh, okay. So go back from, to the okay, story. Yeah. Well, uh, when I was nine years old, my, my uncle Jack lived in Weehawken, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And That's one of those Don Martin places. Is it? Yeah. You know, it was always well, in Mad Magazine. It was always in Weehawken. Uh, but Weehawken is where the duel between uh, Hamilton and, and oh, Aaron and Burr Burr happened. Right? right. So anyway, my uncle Jack's car was stolen and used in a gangland murder in which the corpses were conveniently left in the car. Oof. Uh, it was my father had a kind of strange reaction. He, he said, uh, "You know, there were thirty cars on that street." But whose car did they steal? Your Uncle Jack's. Was he suspicious? No, I think it was because it was an old car. Oh. You know, it was a junker, probably. So they took it for the opposite of a joyride. Right, right. Uh, so that was one thing. And then uh, for some reason I had an aunt that bought me a book called Gang Rule in New York, mm-hmm. which was a, a book about crime in New York City between 1900 and 1940. Okay. And I found them both fascinating. Yeah, so you're – how how old were you when you moved out of Brooklyn? So we're talking fifties, sixties. Yeah, well, I I, I went to uh, up school in upstate New York, so I left when I was okay. So childhood, yeah. all the way up through high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a time when I would say organized crime. How? See, I don't know because I wasn't there. I've read a million books, mm-hmm. but day to day, how visible was it? Not in my neighborhood so much. Yeah. But which neighborhood I was it? I, I grew up in Flatbush. Mm-hmm. But I, I, if I had gone 20 blocks in another direction, I, I yeah. would have seen a lot. Uh, Bensonhurst. So it was a part of life. Yeah. I mean, you knew about it. it. It wasn't so much part of life that I would see criminals, except, mm-hmm. well, actually, now that I think about it, we did have there was the, a Cer- guy. the Sirico brothers. The Sirico brothers were like our, our, our neighborhood goblins in a sense. Oh, Carmen Sirico. You know, it was like going to beat you up or something. I never did see him. But, mm. but um, and actually, um, Sirico's brother what, played Pauly. What, well, they, were, they were hoods. And he played Pauly on um, uh, The Sopranos. Exactly. Oh, because so, he was a hood before he yeah, became an actor. Absolutely. That's absolutely. right. And I got to ask this for my dad, rest his soul. What was it like when the Dodgers left? Uh, you know, the, the, I, this is a, uh, strange to admit. I was not a Dodger fan living in Brooklyn. I should have been. In Flatbush. Yes, I should have been. But my, my brother, who was a few years older than me, was a Yankee fan. So I was a Yankee fan. I, had I realized. That's rough sledding, man. Yeah. Well, also, what, what 
really detestable people the owners of the Yankees were. Oh, yeah, that's changed, right. Change things. Um, that was before Del Webb, too. It was, yeah. Well, it was, he was part of them. Was he? Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, was there anything about living in that neighborhood during that time that would have captured your fancy when it came to crime? No, um, not no. The, the whole city is in the city as a whole, and I certainly was aware of of the the uh, mob crime that was going mm-hmm. on at the time. Was it glamorized at all, or was it just there? I think it was in the papers. I think it was glamorized. It's definitely glamorized now. Yeah. I think it was also, to an mm-hmm. extent. I, I mean, this whole true crime thing, it is quite interesting. It used to be, I think, uh, kind of a guilty pleasure, like professional wrestling or something. Yeah, that's I also what, like. When I say I had all these Anne Rule books, I quickly, you know, I don't display them. Right. <laughs> they hide in the basement. But I think, you know, it, it, well, one thing that's happened in the last 10 years is with this, with the serial, with, with, with Netflix, with, mm. it, with bringing, um, Better storytelling, more talented people, and uh, better value, you know better production values. Mm-hmm. Because these are great stories, and and what adds to them are that it's a real person, it's a real thing. Right, and they they you know you've got all the elements of a good story ready made. Yes, know? and then you have the the mysteries, mm-hmm. and and what's going on now is really wild. Um, there's a lot of. Uh, this true crime stuff, it's about a case that's not solved. And, then and we're gets, starting to see uh, um, crowdsourcing. Right. Like, of, um, yeah. I can't remember the name of Patton Oswalt's wife who died. Yes. Her book led to them catching. Well, it didn't lead to it, but it, it, it kept him in the, in the, in the, in the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was useful. It, it, the, the, the Golden the catching, State Killer. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I was at this conference this last weekend and there was a whole bunch of stuff about the Golden Gate Killer that had been planned already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly was, it was a big topic. And, and the way they solved it is, is fairly unique as far as I know. How'd they do it? it? Well, it was through DNA, but a very different kind uh, of doing it. Normally, you know, if they have the DNA of, of the culprit, they'll match it against the, the database of criminals. And that, you know, you can right. hit, that's it. But you this would person have, hadn't been arrested. Right. You would have to have already be a criminal for right. them to find you. Right. In this case, what they did was they went on one of these Ancestry uh, websites. Oh, really? 23 and me. I forget which one it was. And they found a, uh, a distant match. So they found someone who was like a second cousin or something like mm-hmm. that. So they knew and they, they had... Uh, they were pretty sure that this guy was uh, still in the Sacramento area. And they started narrowing down candidates. You know, they had to be, you know, between certain ages, have certain mm-hmm. backgrounds. And then as they narrowed them down, they tried to get DNA from this, these people. And it could be by, you know, uh, going through the garbage. Well, what are the... What are the- parameters of legality when it comes to that, getting someone's DNA without their consent. Uh, it's like you put anything in the garbage. It's fair. Oh. It's, it's, it's public access. I'll, so keep, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> um, you know, so that's, that's the legal way to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought maybe if they had probable cause or something, they could say, all right, well, you need to give us your DNA. Well, if, if, if they do, yes, yeah. they could do that. But in this case, they, they, they didn't really. And then when they, when they got it, uh, that's when they went and arrested him. Uh, and, and I want to circle back to that, sure. to CrimeCon, which we were at last weekend mm-hmm. a little bit later. But I want to delve back a little bit more and sort of trace your, your journey uh, again. You, so as you're growing up, you're interested. This book sort of sparks an interest, which I'm yeah. guessing at the time just led to more books. Yes, yes. And but, I, I developed – I had a pretty good memory for some of these obscure things. So I, I had a pretty good knowledge. But how does one – get from there to realizing that their talent is writing about it? Well, I had been writing some other things. I, when I came out here, uh, a few years after I came out, I think it was 1984, mm-hmm. I wrote a, an article for the Examiner Chronicle. That was Sunday the first paper. one, right? Yeah, it's called The Bad Old Days, mm-hmm. and it was about crime in, in early San Francisco. Now, let me stop you right there because this is interesting. When you talk about San Francisco history – it's 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 it, it's so closely intertwined with San Francisco crime history and even just San Francisco eccentric history mm-hmm. 
that that's a perfect fit, even if you're not yet known as a crime writer. You're a history writer at this point. Yeah, and, and I think uh, my writing anyway is a lot of history. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of my interest. Uh, also, the, the great thing about San Francisco, it was a place where you could reinvent yourself. That was very big. I mean, and That's I think key. Emperor Norton is one of the great examples of mm-hmm. that. But um, there was another guy. I'm trying to think of. There's a street named after him, and I, and I can't think of it at this moment. But he was a kind of a city leader, and um, they were thinking of running him for mayor. Then he was at a party. And uh, and let's say his name is William Balfour. Well, I'm dying to know who he is now. Uh, oh, Green. Talbot Green. Oh, it was, was Green. Yeah, sure. Yes. There's a big street named after yes. him. So uh, a woman walked up to Talbot Green and said, you're not Talbot Green. You know, you're Harry Reiser. You embezzled $20,000 from a bank in Philadelphia. Uh, and it was absolutely true. So he just left it all behind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but somehow they kept the name. Hmm. That is really interesting. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, like the, even the city leaders back then were kind of corrupt too. Well, there was a lot of corruption. One of the other things that happened was um, a lot of Irish came out from Tammany Hall. Oh. And uh, and they were all fighters. And, they, you know, the political consultant in those days was someone who would uh, either – have people vote numerous times or keep people from voting. They were known as shoulder strikers. And there's a whole history of this. And they came out to San Francisco and they constituted the political machine, William Broderick, mm-hmm. who was later killed in the duel with, with the Terry. Supreme Court. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's an obscure landmark because it's it way is. the heck out Lake there Mer- by Lake yeah. Merced. Yeah. Merced, right. So um, there were a lot of crooks of, of those type. Mm-hmm. Um, Sort of upstanding crooks, crooks who get streets named after them. <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, it was, it was also a lot of them were engaged in um, the Shanghai uh, economy. Mm. Now, that is a very common – not anymore, mm. but it's a commonly known word that I don't think very many people understand what it really means. Sure. It, and it, it, it is uh, one of the few uh, words that does originate, criminal words. Uh, hoodlum is another one. Mm-hmm. But when sailors first landed here, you know, being a sailor was a terrible job in the right. 19th century. The food was rotten. The pay was terrible. And the captain was a complete dictator on the ship. So it was no surprise that when ships came here and there was gold, that the sailors, the sailors were like, you know, we're out jumping here. ship like crazy. And the ship owners came to the city fathers and said, hey, you know, if you guys don't do something about this, we're going to have to stop landing here. And, you know, this is a very entrepreneurial town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a problem. There's a solution. And that solution turned out to be Shanghai. Which now, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. it, did it involve hitting someone over the head with a sap or just waiting till they were drunk and passed out? Uh, uh, that was one of the ways. I mean, basically, it, it was a team effort. You know, and the first uh, part of the team were people known as runners. And they were sort of tough guys. And they would either lure someone into certain uh, rooming houses or bars. Sometimes they would kind of strong arm them in. And once they were in these places, they would be rendered insensible. One, of, one way was, was, a, uh, was a drink. Uh, there mm-hmm. was a woman uh, who was a very successful Shanghai, Miss Piggott, and she would give the person a Miss Piggott special, which was sort of equal parts gin, whiskey, and uh, opium. Oh, boy. And then uh, while the person was reeling under the effect of this drink, she'd reach, she'd reach from behind the bar and pull out a bung starter. A bung starter is what you would use. It's like a club that you would use to tap a keg of beer. Oh, okay. Hit him over the head with it and then pull a lever behind the bar that opened the trap door upon which the guy, this guy was sitting. And he would fall into the basement uh, on, on a mattress because she didn't want to damage the merchandise. No. And then be rowed out and sold to captains. And then eventually end up in Shanghai. Exactly. And uh, yeah. tell, do you know where Miss Piggott's was? Can we find a building that still has a trap door in it? No, I don't think so. Uh, but the, the Old Ship Saloon, which still mm, is there, still did, was, I believe, a Shanghai place at one point. Wow. And it might have been owned by Shanghai Kelly. Oh, who's also a bar named after Shanghai Kelly. Yes. For those of you not 
familiar on Polk Street here in San Francisco. So, you know, when I, when I wrote this article, um, a few months later, I was in a bookstore, uh, you know, looking through the, the remainders, which mm-hmm. is <laughs> the low-priced books, where sure. else would I be? Right. And I picked up a book about crime in early San Francisco. And as I was looking through the introduction, uh, the author said, as Paul Drexler said in his article. You got quoted? Right. And then he debunked me. Oh. But I didn't care. I was so excited to see my name. So I gave him a call. It turned out to be this guy, Kevin Mullen, who was the uh, retired deputy police chief of San Francisco. Now, I mentioned this in the intro that you had a very long and fruitful partnership. Yeah. With yes. Kevin Mullen. But let me back up a little sure. bit. So at this time, uh, you're inching closer to the life you have now, but you're also living another life. You you have a career that you're following and jobs and you're doing all that, right? Yeah. So are you thinking of it as a hobby at this point? It's just something I'm interested in? Yeah. Well, actually, though, um, my my wife and I, uh, Julie Marsh, we opened up a little media company called Interworks. Okay. And we decided to uh, get into the uh, what was going to be a billion-dollar CD-ROM industry. It, it, it turned out to be a zero-billion-dollar industry. <laughs> it, had its, it had its day. It had its day. And uh, one of the things we tried was to do a game, a, a true crime game. Mm. And uh, Kevin helped me. And I also I worked with a homicide inspector, looked through his cases, and I selected one that I thought would work. And we sold it to Grolier. And in, in seven months, we had made this game. Mm-hmm. And we, we shot it on location in 18 places in San Francisco. There was a lot of video in it, mm-hmm. a lot of um, uh, different dramas going on. And we in, in, de- in developing it, we came up with a new way uh, to uh, have the game player interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of, you know, Normally in these things, you could choose. You, you come across someone and you can, you know. Right, you make a, your choice. hit them in the mouth, you know, B, say hi, blah, blah, you know, like four choices. We developed a way so you you literally had hundreds of choices. Mm. And, and so we did it and, and it won a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, it became used to teach police procedures and accident investigation. Because it was that realistic. Yeah. And this changed my uh, my working life. Mm-hmm. Having realized that I had created a simulation, uh, a lot of the rest of my working life was involved in developing other uh, fairly sophisticated simulations. Well, that's what I was going to say. That must be the follow-up because you don't just create one award-winning game and then just walk away. Yeah, we did. We did something for the Bank of America on fair lending practices. Oh, that's sexy. It was, well, it was <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, and then I, I worked at Bechtel for a while, and I did a lot of safety training for them. But meanwhile, in your free time, yes, you're hanging out time. with Kevin. So, so uh, with Kevin, he had the idea of doing what he called a crooks tour of San Francisco. Now, this is a this is a title that is only understandable by someone probably over sixty. Why? Because of the word crook? Well, it used to be Cook's Tour. A Cook's Tour was the it was an English company, and that was the standard company if you were going to tour Europe. The photos of their time. Yeah, you would go on a you know, Cook's Tour. It was upper middle class, and it was very, mm. very famous. I so think they still have books. They, they might. They so still it was kind of a books. pun. Yeah. Uh, um, and we went back and forth. It was going to be a book. It was going to be you know, uh, uh, um, interactive thing, and it ended up being a walking tour. Now, that's a crowded field to enter. I said in the intro, there is every type of tour you can imagine of San Francisco. But I'll bet it was pretty successful early. And you would lose that bet. Oh, I'm glad I didn't put money down on that. (laughs) Well, you know, we certainly were looking to some, gee, how can we make money at this? And I, I realized that a lot of the online little tour things People were doing it free, so there was nothing mm. in there. Um, and no, I, I, it was popular, but I was pretty lousy at it for a while. It took a while to, to come up with a tour that was the right amount of time. And mm. actually, for a period of time, uh, I have identical twins who were actresses. So one of my daughters became the tour guide, and she was a hell of a lot better than I was. That's when it was somewhat successful. What Now, when you're creating a tour of crime in San Francisco and having the vast body of knowledge you have, where do you focus geographically? 
Well, it's going to be a walking tour. Right. So, so you have to be stuff that happened. And the first tour was kind of a waterfront. But the problem with the waterfront was that very little of it looks like it used to. Right. So you're, you're often, you know, showing a blank wall and saying, here stood. Which um, I would find fascinating, but I think I'm not in the majority. Right. So I looked around and I uh, saw the Barbary Coast was one area. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there actually were a lot of buildings that were fairly old. And for the uninitiated, the Barbary Coast is Jackson Square area? That's Jackson Square. It, it, it's it's anywhere from um, Pacific, from from about... Uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, not Broadway. Well, Broadway is one end mm-hmm. of it. And you've got to remember that the city grew. So it really... Literally. Is, literally. Yeah. Literally. The way it started was, um, first of all, they'd use old ships for stores and different things. And for the uninitiated, sometimes when they're digging up parts of the financial district, they will find an old ship that it was built on because the coastline was actually several blocks. Oh, it was about five or six blocks. West of where it is now? Yeah, west of where it is now. I mean, so they they built piers for ships to land, and there would be two piers that were parallel and, you know, a few hundred feet apart – and gradually, in between the piers, would be filled in with all kinds of garbage. And the ships, because, like you said, they'd get here and the guys would all run to go find gold and right. not get back on the ships. Exactly. Well, there were hundreds of ships that were abandoned. Mm-hmm. But gradually, it, it grew out of that. You know, when they would fill in the space between the piers and then they would build another pier that went further out. And, and so uh, a lot of uh, what the Barbary Coast was... Uh, was at one point water. Yeah. Uh, and so it's Pacific Street was actually probably the epicenter. Uh, it, always, it was called Terrific Street. Terrific at, Street. At one point. It depends uh, on how you look at it, I'm sure. And then it bordered and kind of oozed over into Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinatown was the first. Portsmouth Square was where the city began. Right. And Chinatown became Chinatown in the 1860s is when... A lot of the Chinese immigration came. And those two areas, in Chinatown in particular, really looks kind of like it did. So it's perfect to Have show people. Have you had access to what I've heard as a network of crazy tunnels and things under Chinatown? Uh, you know, that's partially true and partially not true. And certainly the, the earthquake took care of, mm. uh, of a lot of that. Uh, you know, after the earthquake, they, um, they wanted to move Chinatown to China Basin. Really? Or, 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 or um, Hunter's Point, excuse me. And, well, it was kind of, it was a very racist idea. Sure, put them in the corner. Chinese sitting on good real estate. <laughs> but fortunately, the, and you have to understand that the country of China owned a fair amount of real estate in San Francisco. Which and hasn't changed. They, and they rebuilt the section so quickly that it, it was uh, a moot point. Mm-hmm. Just got it done before they could figure out how to kick them out. Exactly. Interesting. Um, and which is, you know, it was bad, but considered Washington State, it was illegal to be Chinese at that time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've gotten you to 1995, but I want to interrupt by asking: Do you specialize in any era? Not really. I I, I think uh, I I like. Um, Probably between 1900 and 1970 is, mm-hmm. is an area. I I, um, I see crime as a lens to look through history. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of crimes that become part of the fabric. Uh, you know, some of the uh, like the Scopes case is a, <clears throat> is a great case, and, and this is all about teaching evolution in uh, schools. Yeah. So now it was sort of crystallized. Often, often mm-hmm. you get a so, there, you know, abortion is crystallized in another trial in San Francisco. Did you read, um, what's the name? It's David Talbot's book. Oh, yeah. Because that's the first thing that comes to mind, whatever you are. Season of the Witch? Season of the Witch, yeah. yeah. About, whatever you think of that book, um, of using those incidents. It covers a period in the, mm-hmm. in the in 78, I think. Yeah, the, the, why, the why, you know. Uh, Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Dan White. Yeah. That whole period. But really uses it as as a lens to look at that period. Yeah, in San and, and I think I think there 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 is something about that. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and also we're you know it's interesting <laughs> and we like yeah. and, and even you know it's it's uh, the guy wrote a book called why we love serial killers which is kind of a funny title yeah. but there is a certain uh, uh, truth to that and i think some of it is uh, people are both attracted and repulsed right uh, you know and a lot of it is like how could someone think this way you know a lot of it is trying to figure out that mind and and how come i don't <laughs> or, 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 well, a little yeah, or maybe I sense. do, yeah. I'd like to go and kill that Yeah. Guy. But when you talk about crime stories in San Francisco, I feel like there's different categories. Mentioning serial killers is interesting to me because there's nothing wacky or fun or colorful generally about serial killers. But if you talk about whatever his name was, Green, who embezzled and showed up and here I am, that's colorful. Well, that's colorful history. Uh, there is a little. Uh, well, I, I, I wrote my roast recent piece was about the uh, buttermilk bluebeard oh and, and who was that guy um, this is a guy who poisoned he would romance old ladies you know bluebeard is really a term for someone who does that and kills them for their money mm-hmm. he would romance old ladies marry them take them on a car trip and then poison them with buttermilk which <laughs> he used because uh, it hid the taste mm. and then he would have their bodies shipped to another state and cremated. He was so clever that the police could never get enough evidence to convict him for murder. But what they did do eventually was convict him for forgery. And the judge gave him a sentence of 126 years. For forgery. So was, you know, well, maybe. <clears throat> so when did this, when does this colorful story take place? Uh, the trial was 1945. Oh, so that's fairly recent. I was going to yeah. say that it almost seems like you know how tragedy plus time equals yeah, comedy. Exactly, yeah, the, well, know. there's a, there's a lot of like, uh, yeah. I, well, I think the the con the con people and the escape artists probably are the, the most interesting. right. But even beyond that, I think the pre World War II San Francisco. I'm thinking in particular in like the tone of the coverage of Zodiac mm-hmm. in the 70s versus mm-hmm. you know hearing about I don't know who someone in the 20s. Or you were telling me a story about the Bad Brothers who were. Um, did they own a quarry? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, the um, oh my god, no, I'm trying to think of the name. These uh, were you telling me because it had something yes. to do with my neighborhood with Glen Park. Yeah, 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 I was telling you. Yeah, and uh, I, it'll come to me. But these people were so hated. They 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 they're responsible for the the uh, all the trouble on Telegraph Hill. All, all the landslides, everything. Still happening. Was it the most yeah. recent landslide? I mean, not recent, but it was within the last 17 years because I remember living here when it happened. Some house, every so often, oh, the house is going to go. Some house on Telegraph Hill. Yeah, Wasn't well, the, they just blew, they blew up shit all the time to get uh, to what, get the, uh, uh, you know, they used cement, used the rock in building. Mm-hmm. And they bribed the city and they completely ignored Everyone, uh, and they were incredibly corrupt, and they were also incredibly nasty. So, uh, but we hear that now and we think, "Wow, that's a crazy old story from old San Francisco." But maybe because the Zodiac happened during our lifetimes, people can still remember being terrified. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think with them is the Gray Brothers. I just thought about. Oh, the Gray Brothers. Uh, I was going to ask is the Juiced Brothers, but they're revered, not reviled. The who brothers? The Juiced Brothers. They, they have, they own the railway that went from Glen Park through Sunnyside. Ah. There's a Juice Street out there, but they're, they're oh, brothers. Juice J O O S T. No, they they were really uh, they liked. I mean, these are guys who would like pull the wings off of flies. <laughs> you know, it, it, what finally happened was uh, there was this uh, Italian guy who worked for them, who who was sick one day, which was payday, and so he came later to try to get his money, and they wouldn't give it to him. And his wife and kids were about to be put out on the street. And Harry Gray just kind of laughed at him. And he was kind of went a little crazy, pulled out a gun and killed Harry Gray. Mm. So he gets tried and he's acquitted. That's the no jury would convict him. He's acquitted. Yeah. (laughs) He had it coming. Yeah, he had it coming. Temporary insanity. I think history is dotted with really nasty people who accomplished a lot. Actually, <laughs> but then we fast forward to the seventies, say, or even you know, even the sixties. I can tell you, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know Charles Manson lived on Cole Street mm-hmm. in the sixties, 
And I feel like that's almost getting to the point where Charles Manson is becoming a colorful figure from the past because not many people remember mm-hmm. you know, being horrified or what really happened there. Yeah, but I mean, I think you're right a, a lot about the, the, the time. I mean, there are certain cases I don't want to cover, at least not for many, many years, because partly because I, I do think there's kind of a, a, a murder porno. Yes. Where, where people just get off in it and they're like they're buying, you know, the serial killer's uh, paintings or, you know, just really. Yeah, yeah. Gross. Got a nice John Wayne Gacy clown yeah, painting in my right. hallway. And um, you forget the victims. And I, you know, so I, I sort of shy away unless they did it a really long time ago. Yeah. So how do you, how, how do you know when you're edging towards salaciousness? It's my own. It's pretty much my, my own mm-hmm. taste. I mean, if it happened fifty or sixty years ago, then then I, it's so removed that that uh, I, I, it's safe in a sense. Yeah, and I would imagine if you're going about it as a historian and not a gossip, it's probably easier to not. Hey, check out this crazy thing! They ripped the guy's eyeballs out. Isn't that cool? Um, <laughs> when you were growing up, this has made me think about which crimes scared me most as a kid mm-hmm. and I think it was probably I was a teenager probably Richard Ramirez the Night Stalker oh yeah what scared you most as a kid was there one that you can remember oh uh, well yeah I remember and didn't pique your interest but just scared well, you well you know the, the the Mad Bomber in New York was was uh, was a case that was you know what a great name yeah well, there was a race car driver named the Mad Bomber, too. Well, this is a guy who had a bone to pick with Con Ed. Con Ed is like the PG&E of mm-hmm. New York. And he started putting bombs in theaters and Con Ed, all, all kinds of places. And no one could figure out, you know, and one, uh, a couple of people died. Uh, it was actually one of the first cases with, with uh, profiling worked. It was really quite extraordinary where uh, they a professor of psychology, a psychiatrist actually, looked at the evidence and he said, uh, the person who did this is probably Eastern European. He lives with his, you know, relatives. Mm-hmm. He gave a whole detailed analysis to the point where he probably wears a vest. How he knew that, <laughs> I have no idea. But it turned out to be right. You know, it was a guy who had worked for, for Con Ed and been injured and had not gotten the money he felt he should have gotten mm-hmm. and then started making these little bombs. Uh-huh. George Metesky. Ah, yeah. George Metesky, the mad bomber. Um, in order to do what you do, you have to have an interest in the crimes themselves. But balance that out with the interest you have in the way the criminals are caught. I thought of that, talking about profiling. That must be mm-hmm. something that you're interested in. And and also, yeah. what sort of access did your partnership with Kevin give you to kind of behind the scenes police work? Well, I mean, one thing is, I, I don't. I pretty much, if I'm going to write about a, a crime, there has to be something in addition to just the crime, some some aspect that that uh, makes it interesting. Uh, Does it have to be solved? Generally, yes. I, but, you know, for example, there was a case, it's, it's going to be in the book, uh, this, this serial killer uh, who was executed. And then there was a, the doctor at San Quentin, who was a doctor for 40 years. And he was, for, for a prison doctor, he was pretty good. But what he did was, it, it was a case of sort of adding insult to injury. So after Kelly, Buck Kelly was the guy's name, after Kelly was, was hung, this guy uh, cut out his, his gonads and they were put in an old man. You know, this is the point of, with goat therapy. That's messed up, this, man. This is, well, you know, th- there's a lot of uh, fads that still go on and there was mm-hmm. a period of time where it was believed that if you take the, the testes of a goat and put it into a person, they're going to revive them. Hmm. And, um, you know, so that whole area of that I found to be, you know, pretty fascinating, which is one of the reasons I, I, I picked the case. Yeah. I'm kind of repulsed, actually, but that's <laughs> <laughs> probably era-specific. Back to police work. Yes. What did Kevin give you? 
Well, I mean, I, I inherited his files, which mm -hmm. and and he did. So he got to keep them. Yeah, he did research when it was much harder. Mm -hmm. You know, before the internet, it's it's so much easier now to find stuff. You go on newspapers.com okay, and you can so, find things. But your interest dates back to pre-internet. It's easier, but is it more fun? Well, I find it's more uh, – yeah, I mean for me to be online and look at a – you know, be able to – at sitting at my desk and to be able to look through all these newspaper clippings from the 1920s or, or the, you know, 1890s, mm -hmm. that's much more fun to me than, than going to the library and taking these things down and looking in the you – know, Sixth floor, head on up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, in that case, uh, it, it is more interesting or I can get more done, put it that way. And also when I'm doing it, I mean, a lot of the fun for me sometimes is in doing the research, I come across another crime I've never heard mm. of and that becomes a, you know, a new story. And to what point is it necessary for your process to go to the site? Oh, of, the, of the case? Yeah. I, it's really not. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm interested, particularly if um, the site's still there. Mm -hmm. You know. Also, one of the things I, I have been doing is interviewing a lot of retired cops, mm -hmm. and I they're trying to get the police, fire department, sheriff's department, and uh, uh, think the emergency EMTs are trying to put together a museum called Guardians of the City. Hmm. And as part of that effort, I, you know, want to get the stories of, of these old cops while they're still around. Um, but in terms of interviewing them, and partly was I wanted to find out and get, you know, if they had worked on a famous case, mm -hmm. that would be, you know, a nice firsthand source of information. But what I started getting also were just great stories. Right. And thinking it, it would be great to have a book. Uh, that's the cop version of a book called The Glory of Their Times. I don't know if you're a baseball guy or not. I'm a baseball guy. Do you know The Glory of Their Times? Uh, was that – yeah, the name is familiar. I'm trying to think. Was it 1907 or 9 or what period of time were you talking about? Well, the book was written in the 60s and the guy who wrote it was Lawrence Ritter and he went around the country interviewing old ball players, Right. Like Paul Wehner and Smokey mm -hmm. Joe Wood and, mm -hmm. and as a piece of history – Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. Like if you watch the Ken Burns baseball, most of it came from the glory of their times. Mm. Really just fat. And talking about, you know, Joe Wood saying, talking about when, he, oh, how would you start? Well, I was on the town team and we'd ride in wagons and we'd go steal produce. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd steal corn out of the field when we were going to play other teams. And, and this is Kansas in the 1880s. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. So, yeah, a cop version of that would be really something just to hear those old stories and how things have changed. It, it is. It is interesting. And and. Some of this, I, I don't know how self-serving it is or not. You know, the, with the number of shootings by police of people, sometimes from the cops, um, I get a sense, the old ones, I get a sense, you didn't have to do that. We had a club. That's why I have this club. Ah. You know, uh, and... and um, Interesting, yeah. There was a, a case I'm writing about now where they... There were these people known as the baby bandits. Uh, they were either young bandits or they stole babies. They were in swaddling clothes. It was amazing. No, <laughs> they weren't really that young. They were 18. Uh, two were 18, one was 21. But at that point, uh, having young criminals like that were not as known. Mm -hmm. they, they did a lot of armed robberies and they, they killed someone. In, in, and there was a point where the sheriff of this uh, Merced got a tip. And uh, that these guys were in a cafe, and he goes and try starts to arrest him, and then they start fighting back. And the sheriff said, "I could have killed him, but he's just a kid." Yeah, yeah. And it, they ended up taking him in by you know bashing him over the head with a with a you know a club. <laughs> which is you know it's a, it's a hard blow as well, but it's yeah. definitely a different point of view than yeah, you would find yeah, now. Yeah, uh, he didn't seem. The, the impression I would get from that is he didn't feel as much at risk as cops do now. I yeah, although he was certainly, yeah. but but yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> again, I, I would get sidetracked talking about San Francisco crime stories for hours, but I do want to trace your career. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you start writing for the Examiner, and what point did this become your job? 
I started, well, I, I started writing um, for the West Side Observer before that. Oh. Uh, and, I, and then I, I, you know, I sent a query letter. Some of it is just to, to you know, follow up, which mm-hmm. has been a lesson that has taken me many years to learn. <laughs> uh, and I, I sent in a sample story, and I didn't hear from the examiner. So I called them back. And they said, oh, yeah, come in. And, you know, yeah, we'd like you to do that. And I said, how did you like my story? And he says, story? They never read it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but I, I started writing for the examiner in 2015. Mm-hmm. And I love deadlines. Mm, you know, me too. basically. So starting to write on a regular basis really improved, you know, my writing a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and made me much more disciplined. And I... I when I'm picking stories, uh, often it's like I'm thinking, "What's my opening for this story?" If I if I can't find a good opening, I may just go on to another story. Mm. And meanwhile, I know you've been tapped as an expert to appear on TV shows, mm. and you've given talks, and you're teaching. Is there a crime community? Maybe not of writers, but of enthusiasts. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this, now's this, a good time to oh, bring up oh, oh, crime yeah, con. Yeah. I went to this thing called Crime Con in Nashville. Everything's got to be a con now. Yes. And there were 3,000 people there. From all over the world. From all over the world, mostly the United States. Mm-hmm. And I'd say about 75% of them were women. Hmm. And the, the interest is enormous. And a lot of it are current cases where, you know, they're following. I mean, there, there was a... There's a private detective who works only for parents of uh, young people who have been killed and often where there is some – where the police have screwed up or for some reason that they don't have the – they haven't done enough for the person who, who they think did it is still out or whatever. And she gets together and she has a little uh, group of other private detectives who work with her. And – they had and people follow her. So I was at this conference. She had this whole session where there must have been 130 people. She took them through the different rooms that were set out as the, you know, the the, the bed where he was shot and mm-hmm. this and that, and, and um, you know, gives everyone like a chance to be a detective. Mm-hmm. But what what made it so much uh, realer is that the parents of the the murdered guy were there. Ooh. And they were doing this because they wanted closure. To figure it out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that was, you know, there there is that aspect to it. And and that raises a thought. In that community, are there historians versus people who fancy themselves detectives? Or are you all kind of detectives? I think most people fancy themselves detectives. And then within the communities, you get the same kind of um, occasion of the... same kind of silliness or, or, or anger that you occasionally do. Like, an, you know, the Zodiac certainly is the most famous mm-hmm. case extant right now for many, many reasons. Uh, you know, this, the, the, the way that he contacted police. Right, he taunted them. Taunted them, and then he had all these ciphers that people are still trying to figure right. out. Um, and everyone has this like a, I, like a religious controversy. You know, like this is my guy. Oh, no, this is my yeah. guy. You know, and then there's a the whole class of people who are convinced that their grandfather or their father was the guy. You know, <laughs> and it's and I have it. They t- take a perverse pride in it. No, no it's it's my in, father was much worse than yours. I mean, it is pretty insane to think that he got away with it. Yeah, and, I, and it was sort of luck. But I, I mean, it's possible that they can catch him, but it's sort right. of doubtful in my mind. But people are very tied to those theories, and people. You know, friendships break up over it, and it's 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 quite extraordinary. Do you think that's what keeps it in the public imagination that it's unsolved? Yeah, I think that's part yeah. of it, a big part of it, and the cipher, all those things that were thrown in um, that make it more interesting. It's it's like if we can just solve this puzzle, and a number of those ciphers are still unsolved. So at, at CrimeCon, they just talk about various cases. Do they have other writers there? Not so much. Yeah, actually, the, the, the stars are tend to be 
uh, people on uh, like Nancy Grace, mm. people of true crime. Uh, there, there's a uh, show based on a case in Mississippi where this woman, young woman, was burned to death. And there was a trial and there was a hung jury on the trial. And there's, now there's a new season. Uh. But a lot of them are kind of cases like that. The Golden uh, State, uh, that was mm-hmm. a whole bunch of panels on that. So it's it tends to be current or or unsolved cases that mm-hmm. I think have more juice. And then you have all the podcasts. Right. I was just thinking of Serial as you were saying that, the first season of Serial. Yeah. And inter- there's so many crime mm-hmm. podcasts. And interestingly enough, there's a number of comedy crime podcasts. Oh, yeah. A lot of them. And, and a lot of it is, I think, you know, they're, they're the ones, like the best ones that are done by uh, really documentary filmmaker mm-hmm. types who know how to weave a story together. Um, but you, I think you need to take all of them with a grain of salt because you're, the editing, what you choose to put in, what you choose to, mm-hmm. to leave out has a lot. You're, you're not hearing uh, really an objective. You're not hearing evidence. But there are ones, there, there's a whole kind of podcast that where you're like this two people on the, and they're wisecracking and they're doing yeah, this and doing um, that and they're connecting. With, it's Karen Kilgariff does one. Mm-hmm. I think Karen Kilgariff is a comedian who does one. There's a lot. My of, Favorite Murder, is that what it's called? My Favorite Murder. Yeah. There's just a ton. Murder and Martinis. <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, well, a, a, a wine, the pairing wines with murders, you know. Well, and that, that actually stuff. brings up a point um, when we're getting close to running out of time, but mm-hmm. do you feel there's a responsibility to treat this stuff with a little bit more weight than Murder and Martinis? I don't know. You know, it's... Um, I guess it depends, you know, if 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 it's still going on, and anyone who's directly involved, mm-hmm. uh, I would say I, I think it should be treated differently. But you got to remember, like cops and you know emergency medical technicians, there's a there's a certain ghoulish humor because what you're dealing is so heavy that right. you got to lighten up. Otherwise, you'd cry all the time. Yeah, so I I think you know I, I'm. It really depends who's around, I guess. I right. And like we said earlier, you know, time heals everything. Yeah. Over yeah. time, you know, it becomes the Darwin Awards. Um, who are your favorite crime, true crime writers right now? Well, I like Michael Collins. Uh, he, he's now he's, he has this very successful Harry Botch series. Mm-hmm. But before that, he was a reporter in the L.A. Times and quite a good one. He wrote some excellent books. You know, there's a whole, I should say, about writing on crime – there's a whole tradition of really good writing on crime that goes back to Blackstone. It goes, it goes back to the English um, where they would write about famous trials and, in, and there was a lot of wit in the writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, Oscar Wilde wrote about a, a famous case that he was just hysterical. You know, and I, and I, I feel that, that that kind of quality of writing, you don't really see very much anymore in terms of in terms of crime and right. I, I like that I, I yeah. try to do that when I can and and what about celebrity crime does that occupy a different place although I wonder if some of the stuff you write about that happened in the 20s they were celebrities then and we just don't know it now well I what I, I made a point that because I thought of Dom, is, I thought of Dominic Dunn while you were talking LA is a you know epicenter for celebrity crime we get like the cousin of a famous right. person. We don't get the famous person. Or famous to us. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, get the gallows, you know. The gallows. You know. That's funny. But um, I would say the, the one interesting thing about San Francisco in terms of organized crime. So we didn't have much. We had very little. And partially, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, and uh, uh, Kevin's, one of Kevin's books about the police force is titled The Toughest Gang in Town. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, like, the police didn't want the competition. It was fairly corrupt. Oh. But, you know, in those days, uh, the only way into the city pretty much was on the ferry from Oakland mm-hmm. before the bridges. And the cops would be there. And if they, like Al Capone came and they just sent him on his way hmm. to get out of here. Yeah, I always wondered why in the 50s and 60s there wasn't more organized Crime, mafia crime in well, San it's Francisco. A, it's a small family. It did exist, but, uh, well, to give you an <laughs> Yeah, who were yeah. they? Well, it was Jim, the Lanza. There were a number of people, but uh, Jimmy the Hat Lanza. I like that. Uh, lived to be 103. Well, that's... Which, 
how good of a mobster could he have been then? (laughs) Or he must have been a really good mobster. Yeah, you know, I I think he was satisfied with less. But, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, it sounds like not a bad life to me. No. (laughs) Well, we're out of time, unfortunately, because, again, I could sit here and listen to stories all day. And fortunately, you're in the grotto. I'm in the grotto. I have access to these stories whenever I want them. But if you want access to these stories, uh, Paul's... Is it bi-weekly? Is that every other week? It's No, right now, because I'm trying to finish the book, it's mm. once a month, once or twice a month. Uh, also, my website is crookstour.com. I have a number of the stories on that. Yeah, so who's doing the tours now? I, I only do them occasionally, mostly for pre-done groups. Uh, okay. I'm turning but, my page. But if anyone is interested, they can certainly contact me. Okay, yeah, that's that. crookstour.com. The uh, column in the examiner is Notorious Crooks. Pretty yes. straightforward. And look for the book. Well, let me tell you something. Writers and would-be writers, book's not coming out next week at this point. Right, Paul's right. got a lot of work in front of him. <laughs> but when that comes out, uh, just to encapsulate, to encapsulate it, you'll take some stories you've told before, flesh them out, tell them a lot, give them a lot more space. Yeah. Oh, I should also say I'm teaching a course. At SF State? Uh, yeah, it's actually part of OSHA Lifelong Learning, but it hmm. is at San Francisco State. Uh, this summer, starting June 25th, about a crime history in San Francisco. Okay. And are you Twitter, Facebook? I am. I don't use them as much as I could, but I'm there. What are your handles? Uh, Crooks Tour. Crooks Tour, at Crooks yeah. Tour. Uh, as for me, I, of course, am at that Larry Rosen, face or uh, Twitter and Instagram. I always forget Instagram. Uh, my website for my other podcast, which is presently hacked, is is it good for the com. So go there at your own risk. Uh, as for the Grotto Pod, uh, we are at the Grotto Pod on Twitter, uh, Grotto Pod or Facebook slash Grotto Pod, and email Grotto Pod at gmail Our producers are Beth Weingartner, Lee Kravitz, Lori Ann Doyle, and now Paul Drexler. Welcome. Thank you. Um, That's all for us. Uh, If Bridget were here, she would now say what she always says, which is, of course, read, write, and just keep working. Mm -hmm.